0: Welcome to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined, as always, by the bad mamma jamma, Carrie Smith. Carrie, unmute yourself and say something. Hello,
1: Carter. Something. Hi.
0: All right, good. Uh, Please don't forget to hit the subscribe button on YouTube. Um, You might also want to go to unsafespace.com, since we'll probably be banned from YouTube as soon as they notice uh, what's going on over here on our channel. Um, Shout out to our Subscribestar supporters. We're doing this show today because we we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Rachel Fulton Brown. We're very honored to have her on the show. Dr. Brown is an associate professor of history at the University of Chicago, where she teaches courses on the history of Christianity and European civilization. She's the author of From Judgment to Passion, Devotion to Christ and the Virgin Mary, 800 to 1200, and Mary and the Art of Prayer, The Hours of the Virgin in Medieval Christian Life and Thoughts. She blogs at Fencing Bear at Prayer on training the soul in virtue in the postmodern West. You can follow her on her YouTube channel, uh, Fencing Bear at Prayer, on Facebook or on Twitter at R. Fulton Brown. We'll, we'll provide links to all the ways to follow her work in the show notes. So, with that said, Dr. Brown, welcome to Unsafe Space. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. I think you've made me feel too safe. I'm not sure that's a great start. <laughs>
0: oh you need to be a little bit more uh wild i could call you uh here i can redo the intro dr brown is a nazi fascist uh all right (laughs) oh
1: now i know where i am (laughs) feminist
0: right supremacist Uh, (laughs) i don't know misogynist white white feminist
1: they say white feminist it's that's that's white feminist i I
2: think that was carrie yes that would that was actually the where the place it started that i was i was praising european culture so that made me a white feminist which is a is that pejorative
0: bad? oh that's yes. bad
2: yes that's bad
0: oh i i'm so behind <laughs> i didn't even know a white feminist was a bad thing uh I, so i'm i'm excited to talk to you about um i know this sounds geeky but i'm excited to talk a little bit about the middle ages because i don't know much about it um and i want to talk to you about milo but i think maybe the best way to start this discussion is for um maybe you to t- talk a little bit about the the blog post that kind of started it all the three cheers for white men blog post and what you were saying there and uh, how that turned you into a fascist Nazi horrible person.
2: Well I I, I think I, I turned into a fascist fascist Nazi horrible person by standing still, right? <laughs> um, that what I was what I was saying in Three Cheers for Whiteman was was meant to be a pushback against the decades of you know, criticism about teaching dead, the, the work of dead white European males as part of our college curriculum. And so when I, I made the post and I gave it that title, it was simply to point to European culture um, and to say three cheers because, you know, European culture and the cultures that have grown out of it, including the United States and Australia and New Zealand and Canada and other nice places in the world to live um, that have, for example, carried certain British institutions – um, have a respect for women and a support for women that is worth celebrating. So I said three cheers for chivalry, um, for consensual marriage and for the right to vote. And somehow, you know, I, I, when I was younger, those were considered good things. Um, apparently now they're controversial.
1: Yeah, it, you specifically said in the uh just so people know, the things you were you were talking about were it's like chivalry leading to um you know, the idea that rape is bad, that perhaps men shouldn't rape. Um, you know, the the second one being, what was the second one? Oh, marriage not being marriage. a forced thing. Yeah. Yeah. Being right. So, yeah, women sacramentally
2: both the man and the woman say I do and that I do is a signal of consent and that is a a theological development of the, of the 12th century. It's a medieval insistence that women have the, 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 the right as Christians under God and as human beings um, to affirm whether they want to be married or not. And so it's, it's giving women the strength to stand up to their own families, in effect.
1: And, and the third one was the, um, the right, you know, men voting for women to have the right to vote. And I have to say, when I read your post, I think that's how I first came across your writing, was the controversy. Um, I had never really heard someone put anything, put these things in positive terms before because I'm so used to being from the social justice world where everything's only, we only ever talk about our history as, as being horrible and terrible and the things that uh, uh, that Western civilization have, 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 has wrought, you know, as being something, um, you know, we talk a lot about slavery, but we don't talk about ending slavery that we ended slavery. Right. Um, well
2: and the i mean the idea that western civilization has been bad for women is is, is a fantasy of western civilization. I mean it's it's it, to a certain extent it's western civilizations continuing capacity to raise the bar on itself right that that we have over the centuries and you know it depends on where you where how you tell the story whether you start it with ancient Greece and Rome whether you start it with um, you know the conversion to Christianity. Whether you start it with the 12th century, um, but over the centuries, Western civilization has continually critiqued itself and raised the bar on its own um, sense of uh, virtue and um, appropriate institutions. And so that we we reached the point where now, you know, we 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 have this sense that women should have an absolutely equal participation in the society. Well, that is itself a development out of centuries of recognizing that women had um, equal status as creatures before God with men. So it's, it's, it's a sort of funny, I say, I say on my homepage, my academic homepage, that one of the things I try to study is the way in which the ideals by which we critique ourselves are a product of this tradition. So that you, as a, you know, previous social justice warrior are used to critiquing the civilization. Well, that's part of the culture too. Right, that we, we are always holding ourselves to a very, very high standard.
0: It's that introspection that seems more, it seems unique to Western civilization, just as a, as a culture that you don't see in a lot of other cultures. Certainly, Islam well, doesn't have a lot of introspection, for example.
2: No, Islam has a completely different institutional structure, it has a completely different sense of the human being and of the human being's relationship to God. Um, it has a very different Relationship to art and and therefore creativity, all of these things are are if we know one of the worst things that, well, it okay as one of the kind of ironic uh, blowbacks of Christianity is that in going into the mission field, Christians expect to need to learn the perspective of the people that they're talking to. And um, one of the effects of that is over, the, over many centuries, um, Christians coming in contact with pagans or other peoples of other traditions have exercised themselves to understand what is it Buddhists think? What is it Hindus think? What is it Muslims think? And have often seen great virtues in those traditions. Um, one of the texts that I was teaching this past spring in a course I do on medieval travel um, it's a very famous book from the later Middle Ages called *The Travels of Sir John Mandeville*. Um, it, it, I say, it's, it was famous. It was, you know, copied many, many times in the later Middle Ages, and was one of the books that um, Columbus was familiar with in, you know, sort of searching for a different route to Asia. And the way Mandeville talks about um, other religions is. You know there are other Christian traditions that have their own um, virtues and are devout in their prayers, even though they may differ in certain points of doctrine from from Catholics. Um, but um, when he he has conversations with uh, a caliph in Cairo, he he shows the way in which the the, the caliph or sultan, the sultan is, uh, in Cairo, is virtuous by his own law right and and he even in the book mandeville has um the sultan cr- criticizing the Christians, saying you have the better you know tradition but you don't even live by it um mandeville says similar things about uh, a hindu ritual that he describes that he calls the juggernaut um it's actually a a, a festival of the Jagannatha, which is interesting that writing in the 14th century in england he seems to have known about this this ritual and that it was a a great statue of Shiva that was carried on a cart and um, as part of their devotion, the the people would uh, slash themselves with knives and and make their blood flow and and says, and sometimes he thought by on purpose, but it's apparently by accident, they would fall underneath the wheels of the cart and be crushed. Right. And he's saying these people have more devotion to their idol than many Christians have to Christ that this sort of recognition of the, the, the significance and power of other traditions is part of the christian tradition and so it's it's ironic that that has, has kind of flipped over in in the the, the last 100 years or so to the point where christians aren't even confident of their own tradition anymore they're they're so you know determined to make sure that they accord other traditions with the proper respect so it it all of you know all of the critiques that that are brought against the west and christianity by the social justice warriors are themselves christian in in
0: root Right. And they seem to conflate um, recognizing that there was value in Western civilization with denying that there are any flaws ever in Western civilization. So as soon as you say something positive about something that happened, they, it's, it's almost as if you said nothing ever bad ever happened and that's how they react to you. Um, yes,
2: they, they're the ones that are thinking in these ridiculous Manichaean terms, right? There's either pure white or pure black, right? There's either, you know, perfection or evil. And of, of course, in the Christian tradition, the expectation is, you know, one, that human beings are not perfect, we are fallen and sinful, um, and that, you know, are we're called to strive in virtue in, in our lifetimes. Very few do so perfectly. And those the Catholic Church Recognizes as saints, but even you know the, the saints are not necessarily perfect; they're just holy. So, it, it's an interesting impulse that the the social justice warrior um, pseudo religion has developed that it, you know unless you are absolutely perfect according to their description of of
1: virtue, you are a Nazi. <laughs> right. It makes me think of, um. I'm sure you've heard the term splitting used in, in psychology where people, the tendency to view people as like either all good or all bad. Mm-hmm. I've thought ab- about that before. That uh, Like people with, um. I think that's one characteristic of borderline personality disorder, which is like a disorder of the emotions, is that that tendency to want to look at everyone as all good or all bad. And I've thought about that a lot in terms of how it relates to like my old belief system and the way that they reduce people to those things.
0: It's a it's a good point. I was just gonna ask, I was just gonna ask Dr. Brown, if you think, you know, f- from the outside, I, I look at social, I was never a social justice warrior, so I don't have Kerry's perspective. <laughs> but from the outside, I look at it and, you know, I've, I've read the Antifa handbook, I, and I've familiarized myself with some, you know, many of their arguments, not, not as much as Kerry has, but it doesn't actually seem like they're pushing for anything in particular. But against Western culture, the only, the only foundational belief that I seem to be able to see consistently over and over again is that Western culture is horrible and evil and should be torn down. It's not even clear that they all agree on what should be replacing Western culture. They just seem to agree on any, any example of anything good about Western culture needs to be attacked. Is that completely wrong or what, what's your experience there?
2: well it's. i mean it sounds to me like you know more than i do specifically about antifa i i, I didn't realize there was a handbook <laughs> um I, that i that kind of pure, pure um purifying by destruction is yes it seems to me that i don't see anything that they considered to put in the place because anything that they seem to argue for positively i see typically as a perversion of the good that the tradition itself would uphold so i you know they they seem on the whole to destroy beauty um as a as a feature of of their of their activity right so that they they make themselves ugly they um want to break things and destroy things they want to um demonstrate the way in which our language is you know incapable of expressing beauty because anytime you say anything that is, is meant to be positive, they, they point out all the flaws in, in the world. Um, it it's, I think it's ultimately, and I, I say this not really guardedly, but just, you know, um, advisedly it's satanic. Um, and it, it's satanic in the sense of um, against creativity, against the creation and against, you know, anything that takes building up. And as human, you know, human beings, we only make imperfectly. We we are modeling ourselves on the creation of of God, but we're always going to be inadequate in our in our creations. But that doesn't mean that what we do doesn't participate in that good as we're striving to to imitate nature or you know follow the patterns that are given to us um, through revelation. So I you know I I do see that that destructiveness of the the left as as i mean literally satanic in the sense that it's the enemy of creativity and making
0: yeah it's the secular analog would be nihilism it sounds like just, right yes um, but
2: satan is the enemy right and so if you think of it, it's it's how is it why is the enemy so dedicated to the destruction of the made the the created and um this i'm i'm deeply influenced in my thinking about this by Spending a lot of time reading Tolkien, <laughs> um, and teaching the course that I do on on the Lord of the Rings, that w- s- Tolkien makes his Satan character Morgoth very clearly the one who tries to disrupt the project of creation, and of course, Eluvatar is able to turn even Morgoth's disruption into beauty. But the the, the sort of premise of Tolkien's um, own art is the problem of both being jealous of the creator's work and of holding too possessively onto your own creations. And both of those are, um, you know, the definition of evil in a sense that they are trying to constrain other people in their own creativity and holding on to something at the expense of whatever sacrifice you might need to make um, out of love for, you know, caring for the world or, 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 you know, caring for our people that you love.
0: Right you you've written about um this kind of general pushback to even teaching western culture. It's ironic, so i I guess we should point out it's a little bit odd that you were attacked for being the uh defender of Western culture when I guess several years earlier you were attacked for being the villain of Western culture uh, <laughs> incorrectly <laughs> but still right uh,
2: they seem to get it wrong both times
0: <laughs> yes um but so but you've taught you teach uh, European civilization. I I assume you still teach the European civilization uh, course. Um, And so you were attacked for not teaching the Western classics in the the way that your mentor had taught them, um, which wasn't even your decision, it sounds like. Uh, And then and now you're being vilified for even supporting anything about Western culture, saying anything good about it. And you wrote an article about um, pushback and you cited Stanford as an example of students pushing back against Western culture and having to learn Western culture at all. And, um, they really seem to want to make all cultures morally equivalent. And I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about that for a minute, because I don't think, I think we, you've talked about this too. People take our culture for granted. We take things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, um, you know, uh, innocent until proven guilty, private property. We take all these things for granted. and they're not normal historically
2: well they're particular to our tradition yes um, well so what I what I said already about the way Christianity looks at other traditions and, and finds the good in them with with the understanding that there's you know evil is the utter absence of, of being right and in, in, in Augustinian terms so any religion um, no matter how far removed from revelation is going to contain good so you know one of the most significant examples is the way in which Bartolomé de las Casas argued in the 16th century for the inherent goodness of the um, Native American religions, which included human sacrifice and cannibalism. <laughs> um, and you can say, how could, how could a Dominican be arguing in favor of human sacrifice and cannibalism, which are, you know, considered by most living people now, particularly evil and he said well because that, that was as good as the the incas and the aztecs could get without revelation right it's like the reason will get you to the the point that you sacrifice the thing that is most valuable and of course the human life is most valuable and so it makes sense to a certain extent that um the incas and the aztec would come up with with human sacrifices their their highest religious ritual now as a dominican he obviously wants to Convince people that that's 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 um, not what God wants, but you know he says from their perspective it made sense. Um, it, it's a similar sort of impulse in Western education generally that I, I mentioned John Mandeville and his interest in Islam and Hinduism. He has descriptions of Buddhists as well. He has descriptions of peoples um, living in the um, the the eight you know the around India and China. He um, has descriptions of China. The recognition throughout um, the Middle Ages that there were peoples outside of Christendom who were also human and who had reason, and if you came in contact with them as a Christian, you would also recognize as descended from Adam and Eve and creatures of God. So, to me, the the, the worry about you know teaching Western civilization and whether or not we we learn at, about other civilizations as well has always seemed right of course you're going to want to learn about other civilizations as well as the western civilization that's that's part of western civilization to be curious about all these other traditions so when you know when i when i was in college it was utterly normal for me to say well i'm a religious studies and history major and in religious studies we had courses in eastern religions as well as um christianity judaism and islam um and ethics and um postmodernism, and in my history degree, I did courses in American history, I did courses in medieval Europe, but I also did courses in China, um, and uh, Latin, did I do some Latin American studies? Maybe early modern, and we read, it, you know, it's like by the end of it, you should want to know all of world history, right? There's one great human story that we have fragments of and pieces of, and you don't understand European history unless you're putting it in context with Mediterranean and South Asian and Eurasian history more generally, obviously the more you understand about um, the the cultures that the Europeans came in contact with after Columbus, the better you understand, you know, human behavior and so forth. It's, it's, it, it, it's just always seemed to me ridiculous to claim that if you're celebrating Western civilization, that means by definition, you're denigrating all others. No, it's part of Western civilization to be curious and to want to have a full understanding of human behavior.
0: That, and that's even a, some empathy, it sounds like there's a and empathy
2: of- as well and empathy. And so that's, that's, you know, in the, you, you clearly, thank you <laughs> read fairly deeply in fencing bear, but the, you know, the, the, there are several of the posts of cotton people, caught people's attention most widely one was three cheers for white men um the another was the one that i did in response to the colleagues who were saying you know if you don't declare yourself not a white supremacist your students will assume you are if you teach medieval europe and i said well how do you declare how to signal you're not a white supremacist learn some fucking history <laughs> like that's my favorite line because i i still want the t-shirt right <laughs> it, if if you actually do your job as a historian, you're going to find yourself tracing all of these stories, right? Yep. It, because they all end up interconnected at some point.
0: Can I, I can I ask you something about? I, look, one of the things that I'm ashamed of in my life is I didn't learn history very well when I was in high school. I just it wasn't my thing. And now I'm dad, and I you know I'm kind of like trying to tell my daughter history is really important, but I realize that I'm kind of a hypocrite because I didn't really learn it very. Very well.
2: But, <laughs> well, you've got the right instincts. Let's work on how you solve that.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll ask you some specific questions about that later, but one of the, one of the, the things that I think about with, with Western culture, a lot of people point to the Enlightenment, right? And then as, as kind of one of the, the seeds of a lot of Western culture. And then, they, and then they back up and say, well, it's the Reformation that led to the Enlightenment. But you're the first person I've ever read that says, actually, it was the Middle Ages. Um, and the Middle Ages, granted, is a huge time period, it's like a 1,000 years, so um, I'm wondering. It's a long
2: development. It takes a while.
0: (laughs) Can you tell us, just really, I mean, I know, you know, you could probably lecture about this for days, but just really briefly, can you tell us what's the, why is it the Middle Ages that you're pointing to as kind of the birthplace of, of Western civilization and a lot of the values that we take for granted? Towns. Towns?
2: It's the development of the towns. Um, and I I did a class last um, year on the, the the importance of the towns. You realize I, what you're talking about when you talk about our government and our our traditions of government. They're not. I mean, we in the 18th century that you know they like talking about how democracy came from Greece, but in fact, what the the American founders um, were drawing on were traditions of English common law in particular, um, and they develop out of the the Middle Ages and the centuries of you know, local consultative government on the basis of primarily in the towns, although the Anglo-Saxon law codes are, are fairly negotiated as well. But um, many of the structures that we depend upon in, you know, modern um, society develop in medieval Europe um, as consequences of charters that are given to towns so that we think about things like, you know, liberty as as this thing that everybody has we say as a right to well in the middle ages the right to liberty was an actual grant of the king or of the lord that gave you the charter for your town right so it wasn't a it wasn't a considered this god-given thing it was actually politically um, legally bestowed on the, the the citizens of the towns um, the kinds of, you know, representative government that we draw on in the United States and, and you know, modeled on Parliament are obviously also medieval developments. Um, but it's also a, a culture of, you know, virtue and devotion and care for others in your community, and so, and that that develops in the medieval towns, you know, out of parish organization out of the desire to build you know the great cathedrals that you train all the artisans and craftsmen and and so forth to make your own cathedral because each town wanted it each of the cities wanted their own cathedral or they wanted their 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 churches um that we see the development of ideals of education throughout the middle ages uh that you have both men and women wanting to learn to read and schools set up for the children in the towns, and the idea that you take the best, most talented children from those schools and send them off to university. Um, that's a medieval development. Um, what, I've, what I said in my three chairs about the recognition of women's status, that women throughout the, the Middle Ages in Europe have, have in, comparatively in human history, an amazingly high status, including in the sense of respect that is meant to be given to women modeled on the respect that you give to the Virgin Mary as the mother of God. And therefore, in, in fact, the town is all centered on this image of Mary as, um, you know, she's considered in, in the medieval devotions, the, the temple, the throne, the city where God becomes present. And what, what we talked about in my, my town's course was the way in which medieval cities are all, modeled to a certain extent on the image of creation right they're sort of cosmic christianity is a, is from its origins in uh, an urban religion it's focused on a holy city on jerusalem and the towns that develop in medieval europe carry with them all of these registers right they're they're centers of of legal and political development they're centers of commercial and crafts development um, they're centers of education and literacy And they're centers of art and devotion and, you know, the sort of higher, higher contemplation. So I, you know, what I now see, is like to understand the significance of medieval Europe, you start with the great um, importance of the development of the towns. And that's why, you know, that's why Marx is actually so dangerous because he's attacking the bourgeoisie. And guess who the bourgeoisie are? The townspeople. All of the values, that, you know, those bourgeois values that you're you know, supposed to spit upon and consider repressive, they are the, the virtues and, and structures that enabled Europe to develop as it did. Interesting. Are
0: you, are you saying that it was, um, it was the, the Christian religion that led to the towns or was this coincidental and they, they happened to be Christian? Because don't you have towns? I don't know. I don't know Chinese history very well either. I assume you have towns elsewhere in the world. But you really only had uh, the Western culture develop, obviously, in Europe.
2: Well, I, I think, yes, of course, there are towns in other in other um, um traditions. And the the I just taught a course this spring on religion and history, and we were reading a, a book, um, Stephen Protero's God is not one, which was purporting to show you know the difference between the eight great religious traditions on um, eight of the great religious traditions in the world and we so we talked a bit about confucianism for example um town life requires a certain development of character and virtue otherwise people are can't live with each other and i i that's why when i gave you my answer i'm i'm sort of layering it on on a number of different characteristics right then and, and this i think is you know the the propensity that certain you know political actors on either side of the the, the divide as it were whatever that divide means, have to reduce our culture to one or another characteristics, right? So I don't know what the social justice warriors say, but the the conservatives will often say things like, well, it's our liberty or it's our freedom or it's, you know, our justice or it's this or that. Well, the reality is to, to support any of those ideals, you need a very robust institutional structure And that institutional structure developed in, in the European towns. Um, So you can't, it's like, it's like worrying about whether or not, which, which part of you is, is most you, is it your eyes? Is it your nose? Is it your hands? Is it your gut? Is it your feet? Right. You need all of it in order to be a fully functioning culture and, um, to, to pull out one or the other, say well, it's the Christian towns in northern in in. I mean, I say northern Europe. It's southern Mediterranean Europe also has significant um, developments that are are important, and it's also the towns in contact with the you know the Asian traditions that people like Mandeville were aware of. So, trying to dissect it, I, I think it's maybe the best metaphor is the one that Tolkien used when he's talking about. Um, scholars studying Beowulf as, as something that they were going to extract social history from. And, and they, it was like he said, it was like they found a tower, knocked it over to study the bricks or the rock, the stones that were used to build it, and then said, well, where'd the poem go? <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I, I think that t- to a certain extent happens when people want to, you know, find the essence of Western civilization. It's another metaphor. is like cutting open the ball to find to find the bounce that Tol- Tolkien used when talking about the way people study um, stories, right? You've, you've cut open the hole and are wor- wondering why you can't find what it was that animated it.
0: It's actually much more complex than, and and maybe difficult to define. I, I don't know, there's a quote in one of your articles that, I, that just really struck me. And if it's okay, I just wanna read it because it's about this. And you say, because um, this is how I feel <laughs> about medieval, right? As my professor of Byzantine history in graduate school used to love to tell us, (laughs) medieval medieval Europe was a backwater, a dump, the dregs of what was left after the Roman Empire moved east and all the legions left. European Christians spent over a millennium in the shadow of Dar al-Islam, always conscious of themselves as backward in scientific knowledge, lacking the access to the greatest markets, incapable of even following their own Lord's commandments as faithfully as they should. I ignored the parentheses, but... You get the gist of that. Um, it just seems so weird. We think of, that's how I think of uh, the middle ages and to to think of that as the crucible from which, because I'm very, I'm very grateful and appreciative of what we have in Western civilization and to think about that, that being the crucible is kind of mind blowing. I don't think I've wrapped my head around it yet. I got to study more. Well, in,
2: in, that, in that, that's the post. that's the unbearable whiteness of the West, right? Um, I think so. Uh you, I go on to quote Mandeville in that in that post, right? And yes. um what I'm I'm being a bit mischievous in that paragraph because I don't completely agree with Professor Garsoyan. Um and, and the thing is now the more I've the I've done proper study since I wrote that blog post of the towns, and I have a much greater appreciation of how significant a development they had, particularly from the twelfth century. Um, you know, Professor Garsoyan's right for the earlier Middle Ages. But she's very, very wrong by the later Middle Ages, and that's you know what you said. It's like the Middle Ages. We think of them as this single, you know, this single moment, but it's a thousand years. So by the end of the Middle Ages, those towns that I've described for you have become extremely wealthy. They have highly skilled craftsmen. They have the people that are able to then launch Europe, you know, out into its contact with the rest of the world. Um, as it does in the 16th century and you know either conquer a great part of it or you know develop significant trading relations with with other parts of it so um professor garsoian was more thinking i think of the earlier period that her her focus was more the ninth and tenth centuries and in the in that in those periods yes europe was still to a certain extent a backwater but um we know now thanks to the work of um particularly Michael McCormick at Harvard, how significant the trading connections remained th- even throughout the earlier period with the East. So, you know, it's, it's easy to, it, 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 it's easy to, um, diminish the accomplishments of any historical period by comparing it with now. <laughs> um, but to recognize where our now came from, it's like the seeds of it were, were sown in, in, in europe in the in the middle ages you yeah. don't get to the enlightenment without the 12th century it's it's like worrying right. you don't about
0: get to even the reformation without the 12th century i imagine
2: right right and and um the another characteristic of europeans has been weirdly enough to dismiss their own past <laughs> and you know the the french try to do it with with great verve in the in the in the revolution right they start over the calendar and things like that and try to destroy all the previous structures but even even they depend a great deal on what they'd
1: been prior to that. So, in in terms of like um, something you just said, that they like to we like to destroy our past. In terms of where medieval studies is at now, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people I know, tend to write off the stuff that I have to say about what's happening at college campuses. Is like um, me being a bit hysterical about it. Uh, and so I was wondering, I, I, it seems to me as an outsider looking in and looking at the controversy that's been happening with you and this, um, uh, particular one particular person, Dorothy Kim, and a lot of other academics who sort of ganged up with her to, in my opinion, bully and harass you and to do all the things they were accusing you of doing. Um, it seems to me that, that the intent is to destroy, um, the past is to destroy the whole field is to destroy medieval studies would you would am i oversimplifying it or like what is the state of medieval studies has it been completely converged upon by by the post by sjw ideology or is it are you like the lone professor
2: <laughs> <laughs> um i, I am I, so there were a few others that came to my defense, Richard Landis and Jane Chance, um, okay. very famously in, in Milo's article. You still get, you get to talk to me about Milo. We get we get to Milo eventually. Oh, cool. <laughs>
0: no, um, we won't.
2: Please do. Um, that I am the only one who you know sort of ended up in the midst of the the um, name calling, and I was a bit surprised at how few people were it, it, within my own field were willing to come out and say, "Wait a minute, this is a bit much." Um, I don't know yet how much the field has been contaminated by this kind of scholarship. I know people are nervous, um, and not so much because of what I say, but, you know, that they're, they're very nervous about saying, you know, positively championing Christianity as the, you know, the wellspring of many of our, our great, um, ideals and, um, Values, even people that work on Christianity were not willing to admit that that was pretty much what I was trying to do, Um, because the field has been quite anxious about acknowledging, you know, ways in which, um, you know, the relations to Christians, Muslims, and Jews in the period were were tense, right? And it's interesting that in that in the telling of that Christianity always comes off as the villain Um, when you know, if you know the details of the stories, they're that one, they're always much more complicated than the simple versions that people want to make you think. Um and you know, from my perspective, it's relatively rare that the Christians are, you know, flat out the villains. Um they may make bad decisions in in um, the way they behave on you know on the ground at times, but um, for example, things like um, the Crusades, there's a huge debate um, that is sort of long running in the field about the degree to which the Crusades are are considered a defensive or offensive war. Well, the reality is it's that the, the um, Eastern Roman Empire, centered in Constantinople, was under attack. Um, Alexius Comnenus, the emperor, asked for help um, in the way that the Byzantine Empire had for centuries. Going back to what Professor Garsoyan would say, I mean, it's like, you know Constantinople always considered itself the center of civilization, and everybody else barbarians. And some barbarians you allowed the princesses to marry, and most of them you didn't. Um, it was okay to marry a Frankish princess, um, and indeed, in the 10th century, there was a, a sort of you know minor princess married off to the German King Otto the Second. So Otto the Third had a, a Greek mom. Um, and uh, that um, Alexius asks for uh, mercenaries, in effect, and what he got was a bigger army than he meant to. Um, And that, you know, it wasn't even clear that that army was supposed to go to Jerusalem, right? It it layers and layers and layers and layers. And you, you know, the the thing you'll always hear about that happened on on that campaign was that um, there were, Jewish communities along the Rhine that were attacked. Well, they're not attacked by the main crusading force. They're attacked by a rogue um, count, uh, Imico of Leinigan, who is roundly condemned by everybody else in in the in the you know the moment, and opposed by the bishops of the towns where that he attacked. Right, and and the the bishops um, in the the German towns try their best to to protect the Jews, um, whom Imico and his um, thugs are coming after and so forth, right? There's always more actors involved on the ground than the caricature version makes you think. And w- what I find curious is why scholars who know the complexity of those stories still seem to play up to the social justice version of things when they talk to the public.
0: Isn't, I, I, again, not being historian but my understanding now was that uh the catholic church felt like they were under attack from uh invading muslim armies for for 400 years or something right i mean
2: um uh, uh, it's going to be much more how long do we have (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i mean things are different in spain than they are in the holy land i mean it's true that the visigoths are conquered by um muslim invaders um, those Muslims are conquered by later Muslim invaders who are conquered by yet more later Muslim invaders. I mean, even even the Muslim occupation of the peninsula is complicated and changes over the centuries. Um, in, the, in the Holy Land, so the, the crusaders in, with the First Crusade go at the invitation of Alexius Conanus to help him recover certain of his own cities, right, like Antioch. Right. And the crusaders besiege Antioch for nine months. And lo and behold, Alexius doesn't send them the help that they think they should. And so at that point, they say, well, we're here on our own. (laughs) Um, And that they decide to go to Jerusalem. It's not really clear that their original intent was to go to Jerusalem. They capture that city. But irony of ironies, it's partly because the city had just the year before been captured from the Seljuks by the Fatimids. So by one group of Muslims from another group of Muslims, the crusaders capture the city and so there's latins holding on to jerusalem for but until 1187 when saladin captures it but after the first campaign there is never a successful campaign to gain further territory every subsequent crusade is a failure um okay. and you know the 1204 crusade captures Jerus- uh, captures constantinople which is complete misdirection <laughs> um and all of the other campaigns don't capture any more territory, and they're very hard to sustain. And it's very hard to get enough manpower to even stay in the the Latin kingdoms to protect them. Um, from the Muslim perspective, these were border wars that made little difference, and and they and they they make almost no impression on medieval um, Muslim chroniclers. It's it's really only in the the late 19th, early 20th century that um, Arab historians reading european accounts of the crusades even come up with this idea that they're a concerted effort on the part of christendom to you know take over islam they never were
0: really really a pretty recent uh narrative
2: yes the jonathan riley smith's uh christianity uh it's like it's christianity crusade and islam or islam i can't remember the title is it? but jonathan riley smith has a wonderful little book that goes through the historiography and how the the image of the Crusades that both Muslim historians and you know um, stereotyped stereotyped Western accounts give are is a is a nineteenth and twentieth century invention. the 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 medieval story is much much more complicated.
0: Interesting. So you, you you were saying you wondered why other professors kind of fall in line with this social justice uh, view of the Crusades. Mm -hmm. Um, but you did also, I mean, you've written a lot about the fear of speaking up. One of the things I like about your blog is that you're pretty open about your own psychology and like, you know, you'll write, I'm afraid, I was afraid about this. I saw this and like my heart, (laughs) like heart palpitations and should I sign this or not sign this or whatever? Um, so you're, you're pretty open about all of that. I mean, you write a lot about the fear of speaking up and social ostracism. Uh, I assume I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but. I assume basically they're had they have the same heart palpitations you do and for some reason they just didn't get for over it. For some
1: reason they are I think a lot of people are cowardly they choose cowardice and and yes I I love the way that you're so open about like in these conversations when you're being attacked how to like deal with the emotions that you're experiencing um the fear that you're experiencing but see what what I what i love about you when i discovered the controversy discovered your writing and stuff is that you are in my opinion you share your fear with people but in my opinion you are fearless in your actions like you're just this badass <laughs> professor <laughs> who's like i'm just going to try to sp- in, in my opinion you seem to be someone who's like i'm going to try and find and speak the truth and say what you will about me and do do what you will but i'm just a person trying to arrive at truth and you I, I don't think, again, I, I hate to keep going back to this controversy thing, but I don't think people realize how intensely you have been targeted. And um, like some of the stuff that has been said about you is just, um, th- this one ringleader in particular, I I, I don't want to stay on her too much, but um, this, this, prof- is she professor? Is she, what is her title exactly? Professor Kim. She's an yeah. um, as assistant professor and she's at Brandeis now. Okay. So she said in one of the, the posts about you, cause she's just like relentlessly, relentlessly posting about you on these um, uh, like Facebook groups or uh, on Twitter. And I think last I heard you said that they're they, now that you're the person who shall not be named, <laughs> but they're still talking yes, they, about they, you.
2: They, they, after but, Milo's article came out last summer, they, they, they kind of had to discover yet other ways to not talk about
1: me. <laughs> But it's so hateful. And one of the things she said, I mean, she said a lot of crazy stuff, but one of the things she said that just really jumped out at me was that, that your views are violence to her and her family, your views. And I'm like, that is one of the most dangerous things you can say. I think about it's like, because if your views are violence, then, then what's justified against you, Dr. Brown, like what you're, you're being violent you know, so it's, it, it's a really, right. And that's, thing. She, I
2: mean, she said that I, I, one, they talk in those vague terms, right. Because that's more terrifying. Um, Milo, you know, followed up on all of those accusations when he did the research for middle rages. Um, he taught, you know, he talked, tried to talk to the, to the police department at Vassar where she was when all of this was um, happening two years ago. Um, he, he, you know, tried to find out whether, there was any evidence of any of these attacks that she claimed had happened, and of course, there was nothing um because th- there never is right these are these are um social media uh claims they're not claims that seem to have any reality in terms of filing a a report that there is actual some kind of actual threat made because there weren't any
0: yeah, it always seems weird to me like if if someone has done something like a lot of people often claim you don't post to social media you go to the police and you go to the you police them, then shut the hell up cuz you have no evidence
2: well i and and the thing is if she had received anything like that her you know the campus police would have responded immediately i got a little note um last last around last christmas um, tucked outside my office door, on in, outside in a little picture that was that was hung up outside the office. Door. It was a Pokemon, which I, I then sort of thought funny because it was like a, <laughs> I got my hate mail by Pokemon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, I the, my first response was take a picture of it and post it on social media, and, and um, my and then Janice Fiamingo tweeted it for me too. And my second was, you know, tell tell my dean and my chair and so forth. And and the immediate response to the campus was to send a officer around to take a statement so if if professor kim had ever received anything that you know was even remotely considered actually a threat where is the police report um and you know that this it's the same thing that's obviously been done to milo um that his his simply pointing out uh, some uncomfortable truths such as abortion is murder um, <laughs> and that um, you know people that have um, gender dysphoria um, it may be more compassionate to um, not start transition surgery when they're three um, and and so forth um, that, <laughs> that this, this kind of this kind of these issues that obviously make people very very anxious and and um, upset to talk about need talking about they don't they don't go away as issues just because you start yelling at each other
0: yeah well maybe uh, this and, is the time to transition to milo uh, <laughs> i mean Have we I, talked I,
2: about the middle ages enough i, there was, <laughs> I so can was so the
0: middle ages it's, later it's okay okay, okay. Um,
2: that's fine. We can, well, because, you know, you don't, you, once you start talking about Milo, you, you're not going to get me to stop.
0: <laughs> well, I, okay, I, can, I can do one more Middle Ages thing, but it's a, okay. it's a, it's a weak one, which is um, you, you drew a distinction in one of your articles about um, saying white culture did some things as being distinct from saying this culture did some things because they were white. Like, right. the, and, and that is a distinction that I think is critical because to be able to say, well, white European culture did these great things, that's not being a white supremacist. That's not saying they did them because they're white. It's just saying, it's the same as saying, hey, Chinese people invented gunpowder. It's just a fact. It has nothing to do, assuming that's true, I don't know, that's my- They did. Uh, and then
2: the Europeans turned it into weaponry. <laughs>
0: Chinese people are busy having fireworks and fun with it, and we decided to make guns. Right. But um but but it's not that's not a that's not a racist thing to do, it's not a white supremacist thing to do, to point out good things that a certain culture has accomplished in the past. It's it's completely different to say they accomplished those things because they are white. And that's what everyone assumes, not everyone, that's what the social justice That's the brush they try and paint you with when you say anything good about European history or European culture. They try and paint you with this brush to imply that you are saying that European culture is good because of skin color and race, when that has nothing to do with what you're saying.
2: Right. And that, you know, that's another artifact of the 19th century, that there were definitely people in the 19th century that were arguing for the supremacy of the white race. That's that's un, you know undoubtedly true, yeah. Yeah. and 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 the racism that was used um, in the in the United States by uh, those who wanted to continue keeping slaves is in, indeed as ugly as people say. Right, um, that the the kinds of arguments made that whites should be continuing to hold black people as slaves definitely ugly. They're not medieval arguments you know the the in in the medieval sources sometimes people are you know some sometimes i keep going back to john mandible because he's such a good example right he has a description of the ethiopians as being black and he says um and you know they consider the blacker they are the more beautiful they are so they go out you know they you know use preparations or something to make themselves look blacker next story right it that or, I mean, the the best example also is all of the stories of the, the monsters that were supposed to live in Asia, which come not from the Middle Ages; they come from classical antiquity. And what's interesting about it is those monster stories are, to a certain extent, known across Eurasia. That the Chinese have similar monsters, um, but the, you know, things things that the ancient Greeks and Romans included in their natural histories, the you know, the people with one big foot that use it to shade themselves or the people with faces in their chests or the dog headed people and so forth medieval Europeans have stories about them and the stories always have the valence that if they're human and rational then they're you know descended from Adam and Eve and you know you should try talking to them. So the, the the medieval expectation of races was one: it's just the different tribes of people, right? The the nations or the race of the Anglo's or the Saxons or the you know the the Frisians, um, and two that you know human beings can look a lot of different ways. They can have different skin color. They can have dog heads. They can have you know they can wear clothes. They can wear be, be naked. All of them are human beings, and the the you know the humanity of of god's creatures is is recognized now that over the course of the 16th 17th 18th centuries europeans began to make arguments about why they were so technologically advanced um and proud of themselves for being able to you know colonize so many parts of the world yes that that's the background of the you know the modern racial arguments that then the post-colonial theories are trying to to push back against but that has nothing to do with the way medieval europeans talked about themselves or other human beings.
0: That's fascinating. I had no idea about that history because we just kind of always assume that, oh yeah, you know, the, the, the Christian culture was always racist because that's kind of what we learned.
2: That's the way we've been taught, but it's, it, these are artifacts of much more recent
1: history.
0: Interesting. Well, Carrie, unless you have, have more, we can switch to Milo's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, um, you wrote just, just so I have the timeline, right. You wrote the offending blog piece before you met Milo, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. And but then, then it once
0: was you... Dean Ellison's letter that, that prompted your Milo connection. Is that correct?
2: The, it was yes, that I, so Dean Ellison put the wrote the letter about having no safe spaces at Chicago and, I was aware because of the um, controversy that it had risen up about the Three Cheers for White Man post. I was aware in January, February 2016 that Milo was out there giving talks, um, partly because another colleague, Alan Franson, was also attacked by the same group of social justice warriors. And he and I, in our conversations, he sort of said, Have you heard about this Milo person? So when I, in September 2016, when the letter went out from the deans. I was sort of curious and I went and watched
1: uh, a number of Milo's videos and wrote to him then. And then they just, they really loved that you became uh, friends with him. (laughs) (laughs) That proof proof. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You've had some – so you have a section on your blog that's all about Milo called the Milo Chronicles, mm-hmm. and um, you have, like, an interesting view of the role that he is playing in society and 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 in, in, in pushing back um, against some of this stuff on campuses. And Would you just want to – like, a brief overview of what you think about – because he's been called so many things by so many different people. Um, how would you – like, if you were to tell someone about Milo in a few – like in a paragraph what what might you say about him his importance
2: he understands the importance of laughter and he's i mean what i called him in in that series of posts that my colleagues found most upsetting was um a holy fool um in 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 the sort of character of like saint francis who uses jokes to teach people moral lessons and that in in that sense that you know what got people most upset about him was he was able to make fun of certain sacred cows and and show how we didn't need to be afraid of making jokes about certain kinds of topics and therefore open up the possibility of talking seriously about them in a way that we hadn't previously, but also to bring back the joy of, you know, celebrating our own culture and our own tradition. I mean, he was, he was so much fun in the campus tour because he was, when he was, when he did his political t- speeches and that was the election year, right? And he'd be just the 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 his the students would be, you know, one applauding for Trump and two, you know, cheering for the United States. You know, that that sense of joy in our own tradition is very, very rare. Um, even even among, you know, so-called conservatives. They never seem very joyful about anything.
0: <laughs> I I mean I've I don't know what you think about this, but to me it's clear that the kind of conservative slash Republican Party is going through its own sort of reformation slash split. Um, they're kind of the old neocons that despise Milo and try and distance themselves from people like Milo. And then there's the newer, generally younger people who are kind of just, you know, Milo's funny and he has a lot of great points. So let's listen to him.
2: Yes. Well, he's disrupt. I mean, he's just, I, I compared him to a variety of characters like the Kung Fu Panda was another one um, <laughs> that, you know, Francis was quite threatening and as was Jesus, right? If you think about Francis's model um, be, because you're coming in and you're saying to the establishment, you're ridiculous, right? And you're ridiculous because you're not living by your own standards. And, you know, Milo has made, it, it's like he, he's made, the, the gay lobby even more, you know, enormously angry because he'll say things like, you know, it's not necessarily the best thing in the world to be gay. I wouldn't want my own child to be gay. And they, you know, don't like that because they've spent decades trying to convince everyone that being gay is, is even better than having children. Um, And, you know, Milo will point to the ways in which there are moral truths in, um, you know, things that, people have been scared out of being able to speak anymore and the you know the powers that be don't like that the people that have made their careers off of supporting certain issues from a particular perspective don't want don't want him out there making making them look ridiculous
0: so you heard it here dr brown called milo jesus and we will uh repeat that over and over again and say (laughs) that uh wasn't that one of the, that was one of their accusations about you. I think
2: he's, he's, he's imitating Jesus. I'm imitating Mary. What's the, what's the question?
1: <laughs> I saw that he recently said, um, it's, it's funny. You're, you're pointing out the, that your first thing that you went to was humor and laughter, because I, I also, I find him very funny. Um, and I saw, he recently said, he's kind of going to move a, a, away from politics a bit and focus on comedy, which I'm like, I think part of the reason people have such, had um, such a problem with him is that he he's a lot of things at once, and so I'm like, oh well, if he focuses on comedy for a while, I think it'll be easier for people to see that humor part because they get mm-hmm. confused when you're. It's like I'm funny and I do comedy, but I do political commentary, but I also do this, and they and then they it's like they can't tell what those things they can't tell those things apart. Um, I don't well, know. He's, he's never.
2: He's. He. You're never going to be able to pigeonhole him in one place. That's the whole point, right? He yeah. stays on the edge. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's called himself a provocateur. I think that's a an accurate description. Um, but he seems to get that it's a culture war rather than a political war. So I don't imagine that he's going to abandon culture. He doesn't talk about politics all that much. It's usually culture that he seems to talk about.
2: Right, I mean, even even when he was uh, talking about politics, it was usually at a cultural level. So he's not—he's never been terrifically because politics is, you know, getting elected to particular offices and then having to decide how to use people's money, right? Right. Um, and what he cares about is, you know, art and, um, I did, you know, cultural things like the institution of the family and education. That's why he and I have, you know, been friends because. We also care about Christianity and the understanding of the faith. And that's that's a level that affects people's political behavior, but it's not as such political. Although, you know, with my argument about the medieval towns, it's all of a piece, right? You have to understand that the economic and political and legal structures depend upon a certain understanding of your
0: relationship to God. Yeah, it's. I mean, the thing that I'm learning from you is that things are a lot more complex and interwoven than any of the the narratives that i've heard from either side
2: oh good (laughs) because they are i'm gonna
0: have a long reading list to do after this conversation um you you mentioned that milo changed your mind about trump so at one point you were like not you were in the anti-trump camp what did he do to change your mind about trump
2: so i wasn't i well one at the time that I wrote three cheers for white men, I think one of the context for it was that I was about to go on the national review cruise that summer. And so I was, I was sort of feeling like dangerous at that. I was like, little did I know <laughs> what was coming right. <laughs> that even, even reading national review was considered out, you know, on, on, on the edge in, in 2015 for me. And I realized I, I was ready to start making some more, public statements um obviously national review is very anti-trump um editorially and i was you know still politically less informed on all of the players at at when the election the camp uh the, um, the primary started but a, a very interesting thing ha- happened even before i was you know, starting to listen to Milo was I was reading the coverage about Trump during the primary year. So 2015, 2016, and over and over and over again, although I still wasn't sure about him, what I was sure about was that the people who were supporting him were being vilified by the national review and all of my friends in academia. And, and I, it was, I warmed more to Trump supporters before I warmed to Trump, which I found interesting. But by the time I wrote to Milo, I was already you know, perfectly happy to be voting for Trump. And and some of my posts around that same time, I think one of them right before I wrote about the first one I wrote about Milo was um, the joke was going around about um, Trump and um, um, Mrs. Clinton being liked, likened to Gilderoy Lockhart and um, Umbridge, the headmistress in the, in the, Harry Potter stories like both both evil wizards right and and I did a post on how funny I found this meme and I got so much pushback from friends so I was saying, how can you compare Mrs. Clint to a horrible witch and I'm like well um <laughs> you know did you notice both you know both of this 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 meme is making fun of both of them but I, so I even before I was friends with Milo I was I was already going to be voting for Trump but He he didn't oh. he didn't change me on that but he, he he certainly encouraged me to enjoy it a lot.
0: Well, certainly one thing that sets Trump apart from the, I mean, actually in my recent, I mean, in my memory of every political candidate that I can think of uh, or presidential candidate is uh, he actually seems to be fighting a cultural war, not a political war. Like he doesn't, he's not really a conservative by many definitions. um, But he certainly triggers the mainstream media, which is a sure sign that he's fighting some kind of war and that, I think that is the cultural war
2: he said I so one of the things that I failed yet to get Milo to be interested in is when I was in college our my one of my favorite two favorite comic strips was Bloom County are you all aware of Bloom County I'm not yeah so it was it was uh, the artist originally drew for the Austin campus newspaper and it was in Texas I was in Texas right and the characters um live in a little boarding house that's modeled on a house that's on the university of texas at austin campus and one of the main characters which i found totally prophetic once i once i remembered this is a reporter named milo <laughs> which I, <laughs> the only other person the only other person in my life who's been named milo is this cartoon character in bloom county right so milo is the reporter who goes around with his grandfather hunting liberals right which is also funny um and in one of the sequences of the the strip bill the cat who's the awful sort of hairball retching tabby cat a orange tabby cat he was a garfield spoof right garfield the cat spoof um uh let's see gets they they transplant donald trump's brain into the cat right because trump is like on a boat uh, he's he's sunbathing under a yacht and the yacht runs over him and somehow his brain is transplanted in the cat okay so there's <laughs> this long-running joke about trump being in this in the cat and you can say that even back in the 80s trump was clearly already culturally significant enough that burt Brethed had to put him in his cartoon fast forward to the, the primaries brethard stopped writing bloom county say around 88 89 he brought it back to cover trump in the in the election year right it was it was very interesting he's like trump trump was the only thing that could bring bloom county back as a as a comic strip and there's some very very funny comic strips in that series about, about trump as as political candidate that to me point one it's the significance of how trump taps into people's you know understanding of of the absurd in in our cultural um moment and two that brothered himself as a as a cartoonist could see that nobody else you know none of the bushes none of you know even obama excited him to start drawing the cartoon again but trump did did he keep trump in the cat no when he came back he was he was himself okay but but wearing like dogs is toupees i think (laughs) <laughs> the, 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 the shih tzu the shit the Lhasa of opsos lose their hair or i can't i can't remember it but anyway that that the milo character in bloom county was the reporter was was pretty funny to me milo has yet to to, to acknowledge that he likes that or not i keep sending him the strips <laughs>
0: <laughs> speaking of milo um you know he's had a lot he's been i think was he part of the last youtube purge or demonetization he had
1: He's- he had some videos taken down. I saw some old yeah. videos like right. a lot of people he's- had old things taken down, right?
2: his His YouTube channel's still there. He was kicked off Facebook completely
0: though. Right for what I don't remember who knows what the reason was I don't remember
2: uh, he said he was say, so he's on telegram now if you want yep. to follow him. Um, he was saying today that he found out that it was because he was he participated in the Tommy Robinson rally last summer. I think it's just, I think any it doesn't matter it's an excuse right but but they're they're claiming that because he was associated with Tommy Robinson that was sufficient reason to take him off I they're just using whatever they want to make it sound justified yeah. so because
1: you're associated with
2: him when do you come down I don't know right I, I don't, I don't know.
1: (laughs) That's how this works now, right? So,
2: (laughs) yes, you always, you always think, you know, I've, I've done nothing to, well, yeah, right. You know, it doesn't matter. I didn't, I hadn't done nothing. I had said three cheers for white men and I got called a fascist.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's a total Nazi thing to say. Um,
2: Three cheers for anybody is a total Nazi thing to say. I think, you know, you're celebrating someone.
0: Yeah. stop. Envy
2: kicks in.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's, wait, someone's happy somewhere.
2: Right. Uh, Yeah. Someone's happy somewhere. Better call them a Nazi. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't want to circle back to history a little bit, but I'm thinking about this. Um, you mentioned John Milton in one of your articles about, uh, freedom of speech, kind of the origins of freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think your point was one of your points. It was, was how freedom of speech and freedom of of religion were kind of the same thing. Um, at, at one point, because um, it was the freedom to worship differently or talk about God or criticize a religion differently. Um, and something that, I, that struck me as interesting was um, you make the argument, so John Milton compares destroying books to homicide and destroying like a lot of books, basically genocide, which is really interesting given modern times, I'm sure he would argue that, you know, taking down YouTube channels is murder. Mm. Uh, but basically. But he also seemed to understand that it was, correct me if I'm wrong, because I just want to clarify, it seemed that Milton understood that this was about culture, not politics, which I think is the point you're making also, um, that censorship is a cultural problem, not a political problem.
2: So what you're referring to is this area pagetica, which is an argument, what, it's technically an argument against having censors for the press, right? And he makes the very good argument, I think this is also pertinent in the YouTube purges, who's the, who's going to do, be doing the censoring, right? And who are you going to trust more than, you know, the philosophers who are making the arguments to figure out whether the philosophers' arguments are worth banning or not? And, and his point being, you know, what government functionary is going to be basically smarter um than the authors of the text themselves that you're obviously not going to have as the government functionary someone who's as smart as the authors because otherwise they'd be writing their own work right. and i you know i think that is definitely i mean we've got the the algorithms going through and taking down videos that are educational about the nazis as well as taking down videos that are presumably promoting being a nazi although i don't know if there are any of those um that the the capacity to critique is itself one of the higher functions. And, you know, those who are able to make complicated arguments are often misunderstood. How are you going, you're not going to have any complexity in any of your discussions if you're just going to de- leave it all up to the censors to decide what we can talk and think about.
0: That seems like a generalizable argument to uh against kind of central authority and planning generally beyond censorship, right? Yes. Yes. Um,
2: Although, ironically, I mean, where we are now is, of course, I, there was a, a excellent piece by Victor Davis Hansen in American Greatness um, this morning on um, the way in which what's happening is is an is a uprising of the, the middle class and the lower class against the managerial elite, right? And, you know, to a certain extent, that managerial elite has been created by the universities, and that was a purposeful, you know, uh, program from particularly in the United States since the 1960s um, with the people like Robert McNamara and so forth that are, you know, we're going to be, although it obviously goes back to the progressive era too, it's layers and layers of generations of this. We are going to have the experts with their um, quantitative assessments figure out exactly what the best society is going to be. And we're going to engineer that and uh, that what we're watching with the populist nationalist uprisings against this globalist bureaucracy is the revolt against those who have considered themselves intellectually elite. But obviously from my perspective, many of those people are, um, they're not intellectuals. They're not intellectuals. (laughs) They're, they're certainly not able to deal with, you know, Milo's jokes or my pointing out that, you know, you all are really not, um, representing terrifically well the complexity of our own field in our scholarship. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a middle management takeover, you know, the middle management that decides all the censoring and those like, you know, Milo who, who don't seem to fit in any categories. I mean, even, you know, we're talking about, is he more culture? Is he more politics? Well, the problem is you, you know, you're, you're dealing with a, 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 a network of, it's not a network. It's this, um, the, a phrase that Milo always likes is intricate symbiosis, and I, I I always think it's not quite it either. There's something about the you know the the complexity of of a culture that is never going to be uh, something that you can censor one part of effect efficiently to protect everybody from the dangerous stuff.
0: It's an but ecosystem so. in some sense where anything yes. you do does affect everything else that you do. Um,
2: yes, maybe that's a better. Yeah, the ecosystem is better image.
0: Which is something I think the leftists. Uh, it's one of their classic mistakes. Often is the like the assumption that I'm going to change some policy and no one will change their behavior at all. And this is the this is what will we'll be. <laughs> what like do you not know what humans do? Come on, or something. Well, I
2: mean, they like say it's like if we put up a wall, people will climb it. And you're like, well, yeah. So you know. <laughs> Um, if you if you put if you institute a, you know some kind of program, people will figure out how to game it. Right. What you know what the the thing that made Milo's you know reporting tran- transition from you know reporter at Catholic Herald to tech editor at Breitbart was was his interest in GamerGate. Yeah, you know, we're dealing with creatures who are really really interested in strategizing and and beating systems. Yep. What are you going to do? You should, you should, you know, revel in the game, I think, more than thinking that somehow you're going to create the perfect set of laws that will prevent people from misbehaving ever. That's ridiculous.
0: Right. Well, I mean, you know, we could try the Soviet Union all over again. Are you up for right. Hol- More too? Here we go.
2: However, uh, there is an answer that's better than, you know, totalitarian repression. And that is going, but you say, where does Western civilization come from? It comes from the training and virtue that medieval Europeans developed over the course of centuries, and that is specifically what i 'm working on now to you know my teaching and my my you know starting to try to figure out where you can even read about something that is so general and yet so deeply embedded in people 's everyday lives that it's it 's very hard to, to even appreciate it when you when you don 't have it, but it is what we 're seeing with the the immigration of people from other cultures who do not behave in the ways that we expect them to, because they've never been trained by right. their own culture to, you know, have certain interact, you know, expectations about how people interact, including to the level of how you behave as men and women.
0: Yeah, and no, the worry, you're...
2: therefore is absolutely critical. If you don't think it's important, then <laughs> I don't know what to say.
0: No, no, you're right. I think which is why. I mean, there are a lot of people that just say like, oh, I, I have a friend who's very interested in like changing the constitution to fix a few things. And, and you know, I don't, I don't want to be a fatalist, but it, I, I view politics like a political system as an emergent property of a culture. So it doesn't matter what you write on a piece of paper. Right. It matters what culture is. And right. they'll ignore the paper. They ignore the paper now. What makes you think changing a few sentences will make them not ignore those sentences? It's, it's, it's that's, that's what needs to change is the culture.
2: It's magical thinking. And, and this is, at the, at, the, at the root of this is, is the difference between people who, who believe in prayer and people who believe in magic. Oh, mm-hmm. I like that. Okay. So people who believe in magic think that if you say the spell exactly correctly, if you do all the right motions, if you make the ritual perfect, you'll get a particular result, right? Um, and and it's, it's, sort of contro- it's a control, right? It's a desire for control and a desire to, to have a specific outcome. Um, SJW warriors are, are are witches for the most part satanic, right? But in the sense that they think that if they get everything exactly right, they can control it. Um, prayer recognizes you put yourself in the willingness for certain things to happen. You ask for help. Prepare yourself with all the skills that you need, and know that isn't entirely under, under your control that things are going to turn out in a particular way, including if you want to like make something beautiful, right? That's why we talk about art being inspired, right? It's, it's something that you're not always sure where that, um, uh, thought or image or melody or, you know, the perfect, the perfect, movement comes from prayer leaves yourself open to the possibility of inspiration and grace magic wants to be in control and coerce
1: yes i love i love this analogy i was gonna say i love this analogy because um well it's given me a lot to think about but we, we talk about a lot um about how when i was in sjw i didn't so much use I wasn't thinking a lot it wasn't it, I wasn't thinking I was sorting through everything I knew like all the tenets of the belief system to pick the right words the correct words to express the ideology correctly and that's almost like an incantation. it's like incantations and they do they will use certain phrases like as magic spells to mm-hmm. end the conversation it's like toxic masculinity you know <laughs> like, done yes <laughs>
0: and- that's why they and hate Milo cuz their spells don't work.
1: Their spells
2: exactly. don't work on him. Yeah. Their spells don't work. Yeah. And the thing is their spells work on most people. Their spells on most people, you know, you could say they cast this 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 fear, right? And then you can't even see that there's nothing there, right? There's there's nothing there to be afraid of. You just step into it. It it evaporates, right? It's a glamour. It's it's a fiction. But yeah. The, the, the spells are so effective, they do terrify people. And, you know, what obviously what I've continued to find is at least in this social context, right? If you can answer them with joy and laughter, it goes away.
0: Yeah. You, you actually talk a lot about, I mean, you actually give Trigley Puff psychological advice, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> um, but you, 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 write somewhere that you say, yeah, I have a theory People get anxious when they don't know where the ideas that they are asked to live by come from. And I, I've never heard anyone say something like that, but I think it's brilliant. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Because uh, I, it really resonates with me, and I feel like I, I haven't thought about it enough, but I feel like that's what's happening with the social justice warriors. Uh, yes, and trigger- I
2: mean, they're anxious. What I've been describing to you is, you know, the Christian roots of many... Mo- mo- all of their ideals, right? Because they're coming out of a, a a historically Christian culture. And so they don't have the depth to appreciate why these things, you know, deeply matter, right? They know they do and they know socially they matter. And they know that um, in order to, you know, maintain the approval of the group, they need to say those things. Um, but pressed to defend them, they can't because they actually haven't studied as, you know, as a historian, I'd say they, they don't know the history of where the, those ideas come from, but then they also don't know why, um, you know, certain values historically have been tested and found to, to you know, contribute more to uh, you know, the realization of the human soul than, than others. And I, I'd i say, you know, I, I mean, partly what I'm talking about is just as a historian, I'm fairly comfortable defending my ideas because I can give you a lineage for how that idea developed and, and why it um, has the entailments that it does.
0: Right. Worst case, it's sort of a heuristic. Yes. If you have that information, you're like, well, I know thousands of years of history, and this works. Right.
2: Okay. Right. I'm great. You know, it's like I'm deeply rooted, and that's why I say, whether I'm a uh, conservative, or I, as I understand it politically, I should be better saying I'm a nationalist now because conservatives don't really do anything. But, um, <laughs>
0: but you, <laughs> you are. By the way, the uh, the best description of conservatives I've ever heard is conservatives are progressives driving the speed limit which comes yes, from
2: yes my- yes that one's very good. <laughs> we'll just go a little slower but we'll still get in the same place eventually. And you're yep. like no, you know, the truly conservative should be knowing the deep history of things. Yeah. And 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 doing what Chesterton suggests if you want to take the wall away first, you know, be able to explain why it's there in the first place, that that you're able to understand why institutions developed as which you know, it's not to say Institutions need regular reform. That's a feature of being human. Um, they they fall, they decay, they 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 fall away from their original purpose over generations, and so you have to reform them. But you do want to look at them and figure out why they were developed in the way that you know it's instituted in the way they were in the first place. And then you can have some hope of reforming
1: them. There was one of your entries, I think it was maybe that happy warrior one about where you were kind of giving advice for people who if they're trying to get over their fear, like if you're gonna wade into the fray and if you're gonna get over your fear of these magic spells, for example, um, what, are, what are some lessons that you have learned in having these conversations with people I call SJWs um, and, being, uh, um, and being the target of spells and uh, ad hominem attacks and all of that? that? Like, what are some of those lessons in that entry that you gave? Because I thought you had a pretty great list of things.
2: I think there were ten and I'm not sure I can remember all ten of them, That's but okay. I'll t <laughs> i will mean and the first one is know everything. Right, it, it that you really do want to read widely, and the, the more you know, the more confident you'll feel when people come at you with, Well, what do you think about this? and you're like, Well, I think this is you know that I've I, and 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 also to be able to say when people come at you with questions about a, an issue that you haven't considered, you say, I don't know, I haven't read about that yet. Yes, right, it's just it's like you're not obliged to know everything, um, and you know, the things that you are interested in understanding read well right read widely uh that i also am giving some advice on you know learning to school your emotions and you all said very nicely earlier that i seem fearless um what i am is practiced at dealing with being afraid um and that came from in 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 practical terms just from being a fencer and the years of fencing bear before I made three cheers for Whiteman are about my frustration at, at competition and tournaments and living through that fear of failure, right? Because it truly in the end of the day at a fencing tournament, only one person wins. Everybody else has been beaten at some point because <laughs> it's, it's elimination, you know, you're, it's an elimination tree, right? And so, you know, understanding what it takes to take the hit, take the take the loss, get back up, watch what it is that the the fencers who are still in the competition are able to do, understand why you you got knocked out, and work through that right particularly if you're someone um like myself who's used to winning in 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 other in other venues right like I always got good grades, right so so getting in you know the in effect getting an f on the fencing strip was pretty traumatic for me. I didn't know how to cope with failure, literal failure, like getting knocked out instantly. Um, and that's when in the post for Triglypuff when I'm saying, you know, learn to sit with your anxieties, learn to sit with the things that make you uncomfortable. You do need to be able to do that so that when people come at you with these attacks and are trying to trigger your emotions, you know what that feels like, you know what being under attack feels like, and you know how to, 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 to be calm through it. Um, uh another very important of the lessons is always respect your opponent, and that of course is something the s j w s don't want you to do but you know they do have a position you know they do have things that they're concerned about um, it, it we you know not s j w s tend to want to talk things through they don 't necessarily but recognize that you don 't get to have a conversation at all if you don 't have someone who's opposing you so in a fencing About we salute each other and then recognize that you want to bring your best game to the strip to draw out each other's strengths right you 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 want a a strong opponent so that you have to fence hard um I'd say um temperamentally that's probably one of the things that distinguishes SJWs from not SJWs is not SJWs are willing to compete Um, SJWs just it seems to me in my experience with you um want to bully you into giving up which is not the well, same Well, that's
0: because they'll lose in a fair competition, but that's right. separate um, I mean, you're talking about these rules, which I think are, are good, but you also then talked about Saul Alinsky's rules about how the other side actually um, is, have been winning the, we'll say winning the culture war or what they have been doing. Um, I don't, don't want to walk through all of Saul Alinsky's rules. I, I don't think I could, but um, are there... Are there a, a few that you want to tell people about to recognize? Because I don't think regular people understand that, you know. So Hillary Clinton did, did her, her thesis on mm-hmm. soli, and his Rules for Radicals is widely, widely read and adopted by all of these activists. Um, and they're kind of disconcerting if you read them
2: again, I don't think I can rehe- rehearse all of them, but the the most famous one is the, the pick a target, personalize it and, and just go after it. And you can see that's definitely the way um, all of those of us on the right have been attacked. I mean, me, right. It's like they pick they picked me as a target, personalized me as the, the demon um, to come after signed letters against me, called me names in conferences, you know, worried about, you know, making sure I didn't show up at conferences and so forth. Um it's it's the way they're taking out the individual players, like Milo first, right? But then in the YouTube purge just recently taking out trying to take out people like Steven Crowder even, um, that they, they they keep it um personal so that and the wrong response is as Milo and I and and you know Milo and I have, and our friends have been trying to show. It's like once you took Milo out and nobody stood up for him, you've given the game up, right? Because yep. you have shown the, the left that the personalizing attack of per, you know the individuals one at a time is going to work because each other individual will pretend and hope that, well, they won't come for me if I just don't like side with that one.
0: Right. It's, it's, Which is
2: the like, exact opposite of what take we should Milo be doing. Out and You're done.
0: Yeah, right. And if you write it's, about that. I say cut off the support network and isolate the target from sympathy. Go after yep. people and not institutions. Hurt people faster than institutions. I mean, it's a, it's right. a vicious tactic, but it's effective because they make an example out of you. So your colleagues see you and they're like, "I don't want to go through that crap. I'm just going to shut up."
1: Right, and it's but that's right. exact wrong. I, I totally agree with you and Milo about this. It's the exact wrong thing to do because they're not going to they're not going to not come for you if you stay quiet. They're going to come for you eventually. The only thing to do is is for everyone to stand up, is it, to support those people who've been unpersoned. I mean, even if their v- views are, you find them to be odious and like someone that you would never agree with. It's like, but you you have to have that, that principle of like I support this the free speech and I I support free expression for everyone and to do otherwise is just I think it's like to stick your head in the sand and not to realize that it will catch up with you,
2: right? And now I mean now they're they're playing this sort of milkshake game, right? Which is actual violence, right? Yeah, it's fine. Well, milkshake is violence.
0: the nice end of that violence. I mean, I, my friend was beaten right. up and and pepper sprayed and everything else at a Milo exactly. event, so.
2: Oh the what at Berkeley?
0: Yeah. Yeah. In fact they moved. Her husband was beat up. She was pepper sprayed and beaten over oh, the Oh, I head. know
2: who you're talking about. I'm in touch with her. Yes.
0: That's not say her name. But
2: I'm not going to.
0: Yeah. Um, but but
2: I know I know who you're talking about and I I think I I'm I'm I'm,
0: I'm happy we're in touch. <laughs> yeah, no she's one of my best friends, but I mean, I she would have loved to just have a milkshake thrown on her.
2: <laughs> yes no well the thing is i even i mean she's in touch with me but i'd seen the video already right yeah yes yeah it's a very that famous shaking
0: <laughs> the video who's in chicago with you another friend um
2: well but i the, i mean the 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 problem is these are real people who are being attacked right they're not monsters they're not you know right. accidental extras they're your friends
0: yes yeah, and they were just there because one of them actually didn't even really know Milo very much. She was just like, "I'm curious, what is this guy about? I'm going to go to the event." Right. And she got up.
1: Right. Um, one thing about the milkshakes, though, that that um, that I, I heard someone talking about today, I can't remember. It might have been Tim Poole. Um, It's just that they've already. They if they start with something that seems silly like that, like milkshakes. Right and then people are like it's just milkshakes like i thought you guys were against snowflakes you know why are you such you being such a snowflake but they i've seen the media like the the, the legacy of the corporate media just like sort of justifying this as something that should be done um, and then you to borrow a word from sjw's you normalize this idea that it's okay mm-hmm. to use physical violence against someone who disagrees with you if it's a silly fun physical violence and then but then it it becomes easier to take that next step and as people were pointing out today there are already people making jokes about throwing acid mm-hmm. no i know
2: i'm I, this is it, i it is genuinely frightening because they are they are no they are truly literally normalizing violence Absolutely. and, and that the irony you know the horrible irony of their claiming that your words are violence. so you know i can use any violence against you and it's like no our words are arguments that are meant to you know work through to, to you know solutions to difficult social problems that we have about again how to live together in community and to go back to the to the medieval towns right you know that we even worry about things like citizenship and borders towns have borders they have walls you have responsibilities if you want to be a citizen and live within those walls and have the privileges of being a citizen and what happens over The course of you know modern early modern history is you extend that idea of citizenship to the nation, which then has you know borders that you you recognize as um, you know the the entire country, that you know to put a wall up. I I did a blog post that it sounds like you all have read very deeply in the archive. Um, There's a a a a post on um, I will be a wall for them, which is a meditation on the image the wall imagery of the wall from the middle ages and, and particularly the, the Virgin Mary is, is a wall specifically in some of the texts that I worked with for my first book that protects the Jews, right? That the, the, town walls, of the, the, the walls of those towns that I talked about that were attacked by the Imico of Leinigan in the first crusade, you know, the, the Jews that were not killed were the ones that were able to take refuge within the walls of the city and the Bishop could protect them. So appropriately Speyer had walls that was able to protect the people and and so the crusaders moved on to another town that didn't have sufficiently robust walls you want protection walls are not you know they're they're not aggressive they're they're you know protective
0: i want to can i can i circle back to uh i want to pull a thread that you left hanging before okay you mentioned something about institutions and understanding where they come from. And yes, sometimes they need reform. And I, I totally agree. I think, you, you know, you need to know why we have what we have before you can criticize it um, effectively. That said universities right now, you're a university professor. And to me, universities have gotten so rotten. There's very few people like you at a university. It's right they're so raw. And then, you know, as I think of my child growing up, she's probably, you know, seven, eight years away from going to a university, if she goes to university. Um, I, I think like, how can I, how can I justify sending her there? There's so much online. There's so many other opportunities to learn. It seems like I feel like I'd I'd be sending her to, it'd be like saying, you you need to go check out the Soviet Union for four years. It's like, I don't, is that really necessary? Can they be reformed? Because they seem like the source of a lot of this evil. Uh,
2: Well, yes, they can be reformed. What that will take is is another question. But the so what i've I've been asked this question before, and I said well the, the the corollary is to think about the history of m- monasteries as institutions, and how throughout the Middle ages, about every hundred years there were major reform movements, um, you know starting from antiquity uh, in the in the in the high middle ages, you have the Cistercians who are trying to reform the Benedictines who've been reformed in the tenth century, the Cistercians are then reformed. Effectively by Francis and Dominic in the in the 13th century. There's further reforms later. That you know, as the towns developed, as the society became more complex, different solutions arose to the the question of how what it does it mean to live a religious life, to teach people Christian doctrine most effectively. I mean, we're obviously living through a massive transformation now. We're having this conversation on the internet. Um, I am. Uh, just now putting together a course that I'm going to be teaching online um, through the uh, unauthorized TV, the box day is, is yeah. starting. Um, and you know, I put together the website for it. It's called um, it's unauthorizedmedievalhistory.blogspot.com. And you can get all the supporting materials there. And then there'll be videos with me talking through various things over the however it's going to develop i got to start with i got to get the first video thought through and get it out there um that you know how we can translate this kind of medium into new forms of education is is going to you know be pretty exciting over the next few years what what your daughter is going to experience in seven or eight years who knows right who who knows what kinds of media and genres we're going to have developed in the next few years education should be a dynamic and and practical thing. You should keep trying out new ways of of learning. And, um, you know, that's, that's why I disagree with, you know, so-called conservative colleagues, if there were any left that, you know, want to go back to, you know, the great books. And I'm like, well, which great, which great books. One of the pages that I have on the blog is a list of all the great books that everybody always leaves out from the middle ages. (laughs) Um, that
0: by the way, that I loved your argument about this, which was you said we we go from like high point to high point to high point, but we miss like the real story of what was going on from the average citizen, um, and from their perspective. And right. I had a, great books were a great idea until I read that blog post, and I was like, oh, that's a much better way <laughs> to study history. That makes a lot of sense to me. So thank Good. you for that.
2: So so you know that th- it. it- education should be an art as well as a craft and you know there's no there's no perfect practice there's there's you try things and you you know you keep training it it and it it's you know sad it's me that over the years that I've been in academia I've regularly been suggesting you know new things to try as assignments or You know, I have blogs blogs that I have my students write papers on for my courses because I find if they write to a real audience, they write better. (laughs) Um, Mm. And they do reflections on the discussions that we have. I'm very experimental in the different kinds of research projects that I give them. Um, And I don't do it because I, you know, well, it's nice if it makes me popular, but I do it because I'm trying out different pedagogical problems. And I, you know, I I also, I would say, I come from a long line of teachers. I, I, I like to, you know, like to say my, I, I, am all for women's education. My great grandmother graduated from college in Arkansas in wow. the late 19th century. So wow. and she was the one, they huh? all became teachers, right? So maybe it's just, you know, it's in my, it's in my, my lineage that, you know, me and my female ancestors, we, we keep trying to become better teachers always yeah well, this you makes think
1: me very excited more.
2: because
1: Go ahead. I, I say, this makes me very excited because i um one of the things that i i this this all my old belief system did to me in a way or that I let it do to me is that um I kind of became very incurious is that the mm-hmm. is, it, is, is that even a word yes um but i i I just recently started um I realized when I started coming out of this, this belief system, like how little I knew, like Corey was saying earlier about history, um, about philosophy and YouTube has just been pretty great about um, giving me access to different professors, lectures, and people are starting to upload this. And so I found this really exciting. So I'm like, Oh, I can, can, you can continue to learn no matter at, at what point you come back to that desire to, to want to read and to discover new things like the, the the fact that it's going to be at our fingertips makes me very happy That i don't have to go Good. to enroll in some institution and pay a huge
0: fee well that's my question really though do you think universities will reform within themselves or do you think they'll be replaced by something else like the new university what's your if you had to guess
2: both both will happen because i mean if if i use my monastic model there were benedictines throughout the middle ages right those, those houses continued but then when the new the new orders came the benedictines had to reform themselves and rethink exactly who they thought they were um, and, you know, the great, the, the, one of the last great reforms in the Middle Ages is a Benedictine reform. So it's the observance, the, the observant reform. So I'd say, you know, the competition is good because it means that you think through what your best practices are, what your institution is good at, um, what kinds of things you would like to do more effectively. Hopefully we get some good competition. I mean, it. I think you know, for example, if I do my course well, it's not that it means nobody wants to come to study with me at the University of Chicago. It means of the many people who watch my videos or, you know, take up my reading suggestions from the blog, some of them will want to come work with me in person, right? right. So, you know, the working with people in person is always a luxury because we're, you know, physically limited. Um, and, you know, for example, I I do fiddle fiddle classes at Old Town School of um, Folk Music in Chicago, and you know I could theoretically learn the fiddle all by myself just watching YouTube videos, but I go to class, you know, and I have to drive, you know, up uptown to get there and so forth. And it's worth my time because it's worth my time being taught by an actual person. So I, you know, I, it doesn't mean that the universities all collapse and we only do online teaching. It means, you know, things there become different ways of learning added. Hopefully that's what I'd see that hopefully it adds to uh, the different kinds of practices that people can develop.
0: One of the things I like that's happening right now with, because the universities are kind of unstable and people are looking at them askance. Um, you really like the Simon Sinek why questions like starting mm-hmm. with, why I also love that it was part of uh, I was in the startup community for a long time. It's, it's one of the, find your why is a like common trope to tell founders. Um, but, you know, I think we haven't been asking the question about education lately, which is why? Like, why are you going? We've, we've kind of turned going into university as a thing you're supposed to do, but we haven't, mm-hmm. haven't asked the question like, why? Why, why are you going there? What, are, what do you, what's the purpose? What do you hope to accomplish out of going to university? Um, and I think if we asked those questions, we'd probably teach things a little bit differently. And possibly some different subjects
2: it so i i I mentioned that I did a variety of courses when I was in college for my religious studies degree, and one was an ethics course, and the paper that I did for that course was on the the corruption of using academia as a credentialing mechanism, which is what it is right it it's basically social status, and you know the 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 fact that you get an education at the elite institutions is largely accidental to their social purpose which is credentialing status and and that's what charles murray was pointing out in his coming to pointing to in his coming apart that the you know the liberal elite is defined by the meritocracy of university selection and you know you want your children to get into the top universities it's it's much more a social thing than anything else and what you know what could happen and will be interesting to happen is like say Milo has come around and you know Milo and the other content creators on YouTube and and so forth and are crushing the mainstream journalists and news media right it's just like there's nothing left of their credibility and authority that could happen with the universities I think it probably won't take out the truly elite schools like Harvard maybe Chicago um but taking out the the sort of credentialing status of a university degree i already feel it then the number of times that you know this this crazy person who's a professor has been reported on in the in the media it's like oh my gosh who wants to be a professor anymore there's no status in that Th- that i think is that will be interesting to see how that plays out as a as a social ch- transformation
0: well i can say as someone who's hired a number of engineers in the past 20 years um the value of an engineering degree has gone to just about zero. Um, it's, 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 it's what it's, you know, show me your GitHub repository, show me what you've done, come in and work on some right. stuff. You know, I mean, some of our best hires in the past have been, you know, a guy who dropped out of high school, a guy who lied his way into college cause he you know was arrested like all this, like just, but they were autodidacts and they were really good at what they did. And, um, you know I, I i see that in fields where it's easy to measure skill but in some other right. fields maybe more difficult and that's when you kind of want to rely on a, a credential somehow so we'll see
2: yes well i mean history history is is one of those tricky ones because how do you tell when someone's giving you the true story right, right? and and the credentialing of peer review and you know the scholarly lineage and um, you know, t- sort of the testing, the testing of historical knowledge. Yes. I mean, that's one of the things I'm hoping to show in my online course is how, how do you go about reading a historical source to even answer those questions? And right. in that sense, it's mainly been, it's kind of a guild uh, apprenticeship that you have to go through to become a historian that you have to be trained as a, an undergraduate and a graduate student in the craft, Right. And, and as you say, those those things are, are harder to test. Um, it, 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 you can't, you, you know, you could test people's knowledge of dates and things. And you do need to know dates because you need to be able to think in an orderly way and order your narrative and your evidence and so forth. But that doesn't of itself tell you whether someone's making a good argument.
0: And it seems like maybe you're mentioning the kind of craft model. Maybe instead of caring about what university someone came from, it's kind of well, who is their mentor? Like, well, I was trained by this person and that person right. is recognized. And so like, oh, you're one of their, you're in you're in their mentorship cohort. Okay, I'll assume, because they have a reputation um, that matters, I, I guess. I'm not sure exactly how that might work. And I, it seems like that's how universities are supposed to be. It's just that they've lost their credibility as universities. Well,
2: to a certain extent, they still are. I mean, and in it's in like, that's when you go to graduate school, you look for particular people to study with. So True. there's... There's a, a balance between, as undergraduates, it, the prestige of the institution is the thing that you mainly focus on. With graduate students, you're looking at the prestige of the institution, but you're also looking at the people that you would be studying with. Um,
0: yeah, that makes sense.
2: It's a it's a complicated system, and it's a it's a complicated status. I get to go, you know, stand in robes tomorrow at graduation <laughs> and, and, and it's always a nice meditation for me on the, you know, I love the ceremony because I'm, you know, a medievalist and I like ritual, um, but there's also the sort of, it's a, it's a kind of, and it's also a celebration for the students because they work very hard to get the degree and you want that degree to be valuable to them. You want the work to have meant something to, you know, be a good true marker of, of intellectual accomplishment um but there's also the flip side of it it's like exactly what does this pomp and ceremony prove it's it it doesn't prove it's it's meant to be celebratory right but um and i think, be... you know w- we ahead. need we, we do we do need as a culture moments in which we celebrate people's accomplishments like um rites of passage
0: no absolutely it's even good for just building up uh, habits personally is to celebrate your successes and Um, you know, give yourself a pat on the back when you, you know, you reinforce good behavior, basically. So, right. This might, this might be a good segue to, uh, a question that I think is probably unanswerable, but you're the best person to ask. So I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, (laughs) so I, I, I'm a dad, I have a 10 year old and I'm strongly considering pulling her out of, she goes to private school, but even that is crap. We're in the Bay area. So it's all intersectionality and, and whatever. Mm. And I've been, you know, I've been experimenting with other methods of teaching her stuff. And I'm strongly considering pulling her out for next year and just homeschooling. And one of the big heartburns I have is I started to look at like, well, different curriculums available and I have a tech background. So I'm not worried about any of the science or math. I can do all that. She's an avid reader. We can do all that. We can write. That's all fine. History is something that confounds me because I, I'm scared to, just go get a history book on a, su- or a subject because I, I don't trust the accuracy or the narrative or the ideology behind the authors of educational books for junior high school and high schoolers anymore and even mm-hmm. college and beyond. Um, I don't, I, I know that's not your forte, but one thing that I could start with would be educating myself, but I don't even really know who to trust. I want an objective like. I know no one's perfectly objective but i want you know i want an objective uh not ideologically driven overview of history i don't even know where to start
2: right? <laughs> well you could talk for american history um larry schweikert and michael allen's a patriot's history is actually a good read
0: okay um
2: so you'll probably enjoy that um you might you might want to tune into my online course a little bit. I, and, and if you haven't already looked at that blog, look over those pages that, um, the way I teach is with primary sources, right? That you're trying to learn to read the things that were written at the, at the time and understand how every source is always framed by the author's need to make an argument in the moment, right? At most of my teaching at the undergraduate level is all three primary sources. The challenge is obviously getting the the the, the habit of questions of so like what do you need to consider in order to know how well you can trust this representation of the moment. And and that is that's the real craft of of becoming a historian that no amount of reading, you know, sort of grand overviews is going to solve for you because you won't know how to trust those grand overviews if you don't know what kinds of sources they're drawing on and how they've synthesized them and made an argument from those. Um,
0: that the seems old, like, I mean to me by the way, I, I like that idea of just training myself to be able to figure out how to read primary material and understand what matters right. and what doesn't. Perspective.
2: And so that's, I mean, you know, I'm going to be concentrating on medieval problems in the, in the course, but the method is the one that, you know, we try to get this, the students to understand that you have to learn to trust the primary sources, not depend on a textbook or a big survey to give you the, you know, the final answer, right? It's like your it's like a giant puzzle that you're always trying to find more pieces on. And so to a certain extent, it doesn't, it makes no difference where you start. You just should start somewhere. And and that's obviously why people like the great book series because they, they're sort of comforting in the sense of these are recommended books. Um, And, you know, you can start with some of those, the, the, um, the great books of the Western world series that, was produced here is is heavily classics and modernity it it almost leaves out the middle ages completely um the um dr Elliot's five foot shelf the harvard classics is um it's somewhat more literary and it's it's but it's still it still shifts to the modern quite a lot but there's good books in it right so you read those um it, it it's people want history to be like learning mathematics and have a sort of logical structure of operations to work through. It's, it's, it's not, it's layering of stories, right? You read a story, you come back to it later, you reread something that puts a piece there that shifts that perspective. Um, So you just have to get a habit of reading to, 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 to sustain. Okay. As well as the methodology for thinking about how to understand the, the primary sources.
0: Well, I like that answer. I think I might sign up for your thing when it's on unauthorized TV. Carrie, do you have anything to add? I
1: just want to say thank you for coming on our program, and uh, I'm a big fan. And I was nervous at the beginning, but I don't feel
0: nervous anymore. <laughs> oh, <good. laughs> I okay. Think,
2: thank you, thank you both for reading so much in the blog. I, I appreciate it.
0: This was a great conversation, and uh, honestly, I wish that I, uh, I wish I had read more. You, you, there's. First of all, you're very prolific. You write.
1: <laughs> you're very How- prolific. And also I it, allow me to make a little dig, one, one more dig at this woman who's led this mob <laughs> against you. Um, one of the things you talked about, about um, uh, this ideology coming from like being satanic and that it is it is all about attacking creation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think it, there's a lot of resentment in this ideology. There's a lot of jealousy um and that's and that's why they attack in a way the creation they attack creators and if you just look at this woman's if you look at how prolific you are the amount of work that you put into your (laughs) writing and then you, you compare it to this person who's trying to tear you down I'm like it's um it's pretty obvious to me and to me anyway my opinion what what is motivating some of this so this is me this is me taking a little dig, but, (laughs) but it's definitely, it's all, it. yeah, there's something there about just, um, about hating, there's something in the belief system about hating the results of good work, of hard
0: work. Hating the good for being the good.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Which is, um, which I think is what Dr. Brown is saying is Satan.
2: Yes. That's what I, that's what I mean.
0: So, well, Dr. Brown, thank you again. This was an awesome conversation. Uh, I kind of want to just hang out and have dinner with you for four days. Um, this is, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. And uh, hopefully we can have you back in the future.
2: Great. Thank you for having me.